church and that how we are one unified for Christ. That we are one unified for Christ. There's the logo up there. You can, if you can look real close, you probably see yourself um, somewhere in there. But I want that symbolism to stick in with you that, that this building is a tool that God's provided for us. God has given us this building and we should use this building and we should use this property and we should use all the resources that He's given us to the best of our ability to worship Him. But this building is not our church. And I'll take it a step further that this time slot is not church. This is when our church meets. This is when our church worships together. But it's not, you know, 10 o'clock Sunday morning is not church. It's our church meeting. That's when we come together. Also, I'd even go as far as to say this this, this spot of earth is not our church. Just where we are is not our church. God has providentially brought all of us together as individuals, and that is our church. And no one of us is more important than the other. God's allowed me to be your pastor, but I'm also just a part of this church. And your part is just as important as my part. And I say that because if we're not all doing our parts, what Todd was talking about, us, us influencing and being a a beacon of light for our community just will never happen. We've all got to be our parts. And so I hope that I hope that, that convicts you. Not, not in a negative way, not in a mean way, not in an um, offensive way, but I hope that it makes you think, God, where can you use me? Because listen, He didn't create any of us to just sit. He really didn't. He didn't create any of us to just be a spectator. All of us have the ability to do something for Him. And so we are one, and we're unified for Christ. And we talked about a few things. We said in our first week that we were one by calling. That God called each and every one of us individually to the spot that we're at. And gave us the abilities, gave us the personality, gave us the focus that He's given us to fit a very specific need in our church and in His body. Then we talked last week about how we were not only one in calling, but we're also one in focus. And that our focus must be Jesus Christ. And if it's anything else, we're going to fight against each other. You know, I was, act- I was doing a wedding this week, um, actually in Massachusetts, which, by the way, reminded me how much I don't like Massachusetts. I, I, people were laughing, but this was a true story. When I stepped off the plane on June 6th in Massachusetts, it was the coldest temperature that I've experienced this entire year. It was something like 52 degrees, and I was like, good grief, it's winter here. What, what happened? This is Florida winter. This is the wrong time of month. It's supposed to be 95 it was a big jump. But the funny thing was I was talking with um, one of the volunteers that had been a helper there in Massachusetts. And I was talking about another one of the volunteers. And I said, now listen, the guy's name actually was Todd. It's not this Todd. It's another Todd who's also bald. That must be something about, I, all my friends are bald and apparently named Todd. So that's the way it works. But, um, <clears throat> but Todd, I, I told, I told um, this other leader, it's actually the new youth pastor at the church I was at in New England. I said, listen, Todd will either be an anchor to you or he'll be a rocket behind you. And I said, the only, the only difference is what direction he's pointed. Because I said, listen, he, he's, he's got excitement, he's got a passion for teenagers, but if he's not going the same direction as you, you're going to bump heads a lot. And the same thing's true for our church. If we have passion and we have all this excitement and we've got all this power, but we're not headed the same direction, we're going to fight against each other. And so that's what we talked about last week, is that our focus has to be united. And this morning, I'm going to talk about how our power has to be united, that we are one in power. And so we're going to be, once again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
And we're going to start in verse 18. But I thought, you know, it, God just gave me such an easy and clear um, illustration a couple weeks ago. So if you were not here, my first official Sunday as pastor at First Baptist Church, I walked in, and it was about 90 degrees in the church. I thought, something's not right. Something's not going the way it's supposed to. And I walked in this building, and I think it was this side of the lights were all on and perfectly running, and this side was like flickering and like halfway on, and you could tell they were underpowered. And I started walking down the halls, and half the lights were on and half the lights were off. And it, it occurred to me, so we were going to be baptizing Dominic. And I had turned on the heater, which is an old heater, and uh, it's given us problems in the past in the, in the baptistry. And I thought that I had ruined the church. I'll tell you, what my heart sunk because I thought I turned on the heater in the baptistry and I shorted out the entire light, like the entire power system. And, and some of you walked around with me that day and know how little I know about electrical circuits. And so I thought, I, I broke something. It's that heater, and it's probably electrified in there. And I thought, Dominic's going to get the, in there, and we're just going to see him zapped and fried, and there's going to have a, you know, and it's going to be an action sequence to start church. And we, I remember it was so funny because we started walking around. Long story short, half of our, one of the legs into our church, we have two legs in the church, and one was knocked out, and the other one wasn't. And so it had nothing to do with anything inside our walls, we didn't have any power. And the funny thing that I, I realized about that is that we spent, you guys watched, it was all of Sunday school. So probably a, the time before Sunday school. So it was about an hour and a half. Um, you had a bunch of guys like, like Derek and like Scott who really knew what they were doing and were looking around and trying to figure it out. And then you had me following around like a puppy, like something, let me just hold your coat or can I call somebody for you or what can we do? And the, you know what the thing was? They started looking, and we, we tried each different troubleshooting technique we could try, and then we had all kinds of tools, and we made sure all the lines were connected to the way that they were supposed to be within the church, and all the, the breakers were all fine, and you know, whoever, whoever did the lighting and did all the electrical work, it's all, it was all fine, and all the structure within our church was perfect. But the problem was we didn't have any power coming to the church. And so no matter how many things we did, or how many people we had trying to figure out the problem, or how many hours we spent dedicated to getting things to work in the church, until there was power coming into the building, nothing was going to change. Let me tell you something, the same thing's going to be true for our church. We can all be focused on the same thing. We can all be here and excited about Christ. We can all be here and excited about reaching our community. But until we're connected to the power of God, nothing's going to happen. It's just like having all these lights connected, having the air conditioners connected, and everything's in good shape. We could have the best air conditioners money can buy, but if they don't have power, it doesn't matter. It's not going to change a thing. We can have every tool that we can possibly imagine and tinker with every part of our electrical system, but if there's no power, it's not going to matter. Our time would be wasted. And the funny thing was, the moment that they reconnected that line, turned the power back on, everything worked the way that it was supposed to be. Because all we needed was power. The same thing is true for our church. If we don't have the power of Jesus Christ, if we don't have the power of God, it doesn't matter how many times I go to Venice High School. It doesn't matter how many teams I coach at the Y. It doesn't matter how many Sunday school classes we have. It doesn't matter how many children's programs we have. In fact, it doesn't matter how many people are sitting in our pews. If we do not have the power of Christ, all of it's for naught. All of it's for nothing. 
And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. How can we be sure that we are connected to the power of Jesus Christ? 1 Corinthians in chapter uh, 1, we're going to start in verse 18. It'll be up here on the screen, uh, or you're welcome to turn there with us. It says this, <clears throat> For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, the Jews ask for a signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you for the opportunity to come and worship together, God. We thank you for the things that you've put in place here, Lord. We thank you for the, the, the building that you've blessed us with and the resources that you've given us, God. We thank you for all of the programs that we have and all of the ministries that we have. God, we thank you for the folks that you've brought here. But God, thank you most of all for your power and for what you mean to our church, God, because without you we have no focus, without you we have no calling, and without you we have no power. I pray, Lord, that we would be focused on you today. God, I pray that you just make this passage abundantly clear, God. Use your word today to touch the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we have uh, this, this passage. When you read it in context and really understand comparing it to our world today is almost shockingly accurate. When you look at what he's really saying, what Paul's really saying to the Corinthian church, it's almost, uh, almost one of those things that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up because Paul could have been standing at Osprey First Baptist Church this morning and said these same things and been absolutely right. And the first thing I want us to realize this morning is this, is that the gospel is weak and foolish to the unbeliever. You look around our world today, every news story is about how Christianity is just a crutch. Well, it's just something for those, those dumb folks down the street that have to go to church and they, you know, they're not smart enough to understand how the world really works. And so Christianity is just their crutch. Well, there's really no power to that, you know, and, and you'll even hear people say, well, I went to church when I was a kid, and God really did, never did anything for me. And that's the mindset, is that God didn't prove himself to me. God doesn't deserve me, and so I'm not giving him any of my time. You know, recently Stephen Hawking passed away, and he was one of the biggest opponents of Christianity, not, not even, I mean, indirectly through his teaching on evolution and indirectly through his his uh, teaching of those that were around him, but even directly, he would attack those that believed the Bible as being foolish, as being dumb. And that was his cry, was that you are just dumb. You're not smart. And, and we, I want to look at two things here that Paul talks about. We look here in verse number 18, verse 22 and 23. So verse 18 tells us that the, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Here's what he says. If you're still in the midst of your sin... The power of the cross means nothing to you. In fact, it sounds like crazy talk. It sounds like foolishness. There's no value to it because nothing's changed in your life. That's what he says. If you've never committed to Christ and never followed Christ, you look at the cross as being just a joke. 
What does this really mean? What does it matter that thousands of years ago a man came and died on the cross? What does it mean? Why do I care about that? And it's because that you've never seen the power. You've never experienced the change that the cross brings. He goes on further. Let's look at verse number 22. He says in verse 22, For indeed the Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. I want you to understand here, we're going to look at these two, uh, two types of people, and I want you to realize it's not so much about their ethnic background or about even their um, geographical location. That's not what he's worried about. He's talking about two different mindsets here. And he says the Jews require signs. And here's what he's talking about. So, so if you think back to Palm Sunday. So Palm Sunday is, is roughly a week before Jesus is going to die on the cross. And from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, from Palm Sunday to um, Good Friday, from Palm Sunday to the day that Jesus was going to be crucified, the people on Palm Sunday worshipped Jesus. He was coming into town and they were worshipping him with palm branches, saying, Hosanna, right? They were, they were lauding him as God. You are our Savior, you're what we need. And within a week, right, till Friday now, by Friday, they, those very same people had put down their palm branches, had put away their praise, and were crying, crucify him. And for a long time I thought, why? What happened? What could possibly change you so much in a week? And I, I learned that what the problem was, was that the Jews thought that Jesus was coming to be a great military power, to be a great political leader, that he was coming, here's the key, to fix their problems today. That Jesus was going to be born, that Jesus was going to come, and he was going to just overthrow the Roman government. Think about that. They were being oppressed the Jews were not in power. They were under Roman authority, over, under the Roman Empire. And here's what they thought. Oh, Jesus is coming now. He's coming and he's going to blow up. I don't know how he's going to do it, but I know. I've, I've read the Old Testament. I've read the, the Torah. He's going he's to bring fire down and just ruin those armies. And we're going to win this week. It's coming. So Palm Sunday, as he's coming in, they think that they're welcoming this war hero. That Jesus is going to come and blow away all of their problems today. Here's what they were doing. They were so focused on what was happening in life right now that they were missing the bigger picture. It wasn't that Jesus could not do that. He absolutely could have done that. He could have walked into town and he could have just snapped his fingers and all of the, opp of the opp oppressors of the Jews could have died. He could have done that. But he saw the big picture and he knew that the Romans were far less an enemy than sin. He knew that the Romans were far less of a threat than eternity in hell. And he knew that what he was doing was far more important than coming and saving the Jews from the problems that they face today. How does that apply to us today? How does that look in our lives? So the Jews, we need to understand this, they were looking for physical evidence of the power of God. That's what they needed to see. They wanted physical evidence of the power of God. I need to see today what you are doing. Show me right now what you're doing. We've heard people say that. You know, sometimes it sounds like a bargain. All right, God, if you're really real, do this. You just want to see the physical evidence of what you really know. Because you wouldn't be asking that if you didn't already know that God is powerful, that God is real, that God is the answer. But you're just looking for a physical sign. I want you to understand this. This doubter in modern day wants the power of God to show up in their bank account, their family, and their happiness, just not in their hearts. This, this is what this looks like today. 
I want you to think about the people around you. I want you to think about the people that you know. I want you to think about the prosperity gospel, right? You listen to some pastors online or on the, on the TV, and the whole idea is that I accept Jesus and my bank account grows. That's obviously how it works. At the moment I accept Jesus, there's going to be a direct deposit. It's going to say heaven, capital letters. I'm going to be able to see it tomorrow here. Now I have all the money I want. The moment I accept Jesus, all my family, they're going to stop having any difference of opinion with me. We're going to have stopping. There's no conflict anymore. The moment I accept Jesus now, Jesus is going to supernaturally come into all of my coworkers and change their mind to align with mine so that we can all get along. That's what, that's what Jesus does, right? Sounds like what the Jews wanted, doesn't it? Hey, he's coming into town. Listen, he's going to kill the Romans, and then we're going to be kings. Like, I can just see them. In their mind, they're worshiping Jesus because it's going to benefit them. That's the mindset. It's going to benefit me if I worship you. And so the Jews, they wanted a sign. They wanted physical evidence of the power of God. But not only does he talk about the Jews here, he goes on and he talks about the Greeks. And I actually think the Greeks are a better picture of kind of American culture today. Because what the Greeks wanted, he said the Jews wanted a sign, but the Greeks wanted wisdom. All right, the Greeks, and, and we see that here again in verse number 22. It says, the Jews asked for signs and the Greeks search for wisdom. But listen to verse 23, it says, but we preach Christ crucified, and listen to what he says, to Jews a stumbling block, and Greeks, uh, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. So, so to the Jews, because they don't have physical evidence of the power of God, the problem is now they see the death of, uh, the death of Christ on the cross as an offense. This offends me. You didn't come what to do what I said to do. So now that stumbling block that we see in the, in, in the Bible, what it's saying is that now this is in the way of their faith. Because their faith was dependent on him doing something physical for me today. And when he didn't do something physical for me today, now my faith must stop because he didn't do what I thought he was going to do. He didn't do the sign that I said he, I wanted him to do. Let me tell you, my own personal experience as a teenager, here's what I said to God. My, my grandmother had breast cancer for the third time. Everybody else that had a brain, because I was 15 and a boy, so I didn't have a brain yet, um, everybody else that had some logic to them knew the doctors had already said, there's nothing more we can do. There's nothing else we can possibly help her with. It's spread. It's in her lungs. Uh, we think it's in her brain. We don't know anything else we can do except for put her in hospice. Well, here's my 15-year-old logic. I said, all right, God, everyone's praying that she will have comfort and she'll have peace. But if you're so powerful and you're so all-knowing and you're so great, just fix her. Just make everything grow back the way it's supposed to be. Just go and do what I want you to do. And if you don't, I'm not following you. Well, you can all see the end of this story. That turned, when, when she passed, which is what she was praying for, what she wanted, I took that as, well, God, you're just not as powerful as I thought you were. And so I just started playing the Christian game. My dad was a pastor, so I wasn't getting away from church. But I just started playing the game. I'd be at church on Sunday, but you didn't want to know what I was doing on Saturday. I'd be at church on Sunday, but you didn't want to talk to my friends at school because you never would have known I was a Christian. Because I said, well, God, you didn't show me a sign. And that became an obstacle to my faith. Because I wanted him to fix my physical problem before I was going to trust in his spiritual power. Here's the problem with that. Am I wiser or is God wiser? Do I know better or does God know better? You know what? Multiple family members on my mother's side of the family, which is not a Christian side of the family, came to Christ over the years through what happened at the, at the funeral. But I didn't care about that because all I wanted was a physical sign, just like the Jews. 
The Greeks, though, he says, and this is, like I said, this is more similar to our world today. The Greeks searched for wisdom. And here's what he's saying. When he say the Greeks search for wisdom, <clears throat> they want to understand it. All right, so some folks want to understand it. Or in other words, not just understand it, they want to be able to prove it. They want you to be able to sit down, and, and I've heard this before, and I'm just going to tell you. Um, if anyone asks you to prove the Bible scientifically, there's a couple problems with that. But the, the biggest one is you don't prove literary sources with a scientific method. Right? That you're, that's like saying um, is your, your grammar's wrong so your math problem didn't work. Right? It, it's not compatible. They're two different things. And we have the literary sources. And the reason that you hear people want to use science as an argument against a literary source is because when you look at the literary sources, we really do have evidence for the literary sources that we got our Bible from. If you look into it, in fact, I invite you, write this down. If you want to go on YouTube this afternoon, Vodi, V-O-D-D-I-E, Bauckham, B-A-U-C-H-A-M, and why I believe the Bible. This is actually a speech he gives at Princeton University about the literary validity of the Bible. Go and watch that. And you'll, any question you have about whether the Bible is trustworthy or the Bible is worth listening to in secular terms is blown out of the water. But, but here's what the world says. Well, you can't prove it scientifically. Good point. I can't. But I can prove it literary-wise. I can prove it with literary criticism. I can prove it more than any other ancient writing ever known to man. We have more evidence for this Bible than anything else. That's the truth of the matter. But people that want you to prove it, I'm going to tell you a secret. You could prove it within 99.9999% with so little question of a doubt that they, they would have to be ignorant not to listen, and they're still not going to listen. So well, why is that? Are they, are they dumb? They're not dumb. But it's never been about whether it was really true. It's never been about whether it's really powerful. It's been about the condition of the heart and whether there's any faith or not because really when somebody wants a sign or somebody wants you to prove it what you're really understanding is that God has called them to himself that God has convicted them of their sin and they have rejected him and that lack of faith will always be a stumbling block in their lives and here's what the Bible saying to those that are being saved or in other words those that have believed know the power of God they know the wisdom of God. They know that He's in control. But to those that are still perishing, it's a stumbling block. It's foolishness. And I'm gonna, I want to encourage you. I remember as a young youth pastor, I thought that it was my job to be a master at debating everybody. I just had to go, and if I could debate well enough, these kids are going to get saved. And I can remember the first time that I went through all of my research that I had done on a certain topic with a student, and I had gotten it all right, and man, I could prove it, and I knew I could prove it. And they said, well, that doesn't prove anything. And walked away, and I was like, no, I, I literally did prove it. I, I mean, I did prove what you were having a problem with. They said, yeah, but there's other problems. And it occurred to me, there's no amount of debate, there's no amount of research, there's no amount of arguing that I could do that would cause them to have faith in Jesus Christ. Because at the root, a lack of salvation, a lack of faith, only comes from love for myself and love for sin to the point where I will not turn to Jesus Christ. That's the reality of it. And so here we have a world that this, I don't know about you, but as I look around, this describes our world. 
you better prove it, and if you can't, I'm not going to believe it. Okay, we proved it. You can't prove it, that's not proof. That doesn't count, because this and this reason, and there's these qualifiers, and I'm not going to listen to that, because this other person said this, and because of all these things, regardless of how much I do know that you're telling me the truth, I will never believe, because it requires me to have faith in a greater power than me, and I want to be the boss. That's what it really boils down to. And so here, those folks that want you to prove it, Jesus' death on the cross is foolishness to these doubters. We see that in verse 23. He says that to the Gentiles, the death of Jesus Christ is foolishness. Well, why did he die? And here was the mindset back then. So if you think about the Greeks, you look at Greek mythology, the whole goal of Greek mythology was I'm going to have war, um, you know, I'm going to have all these epics, I'm going to have all these um, uh, gods and, and mythologies to where the good guy's the hero and he comes out on top, right? You got Hercules, you have Zeus, you have all these other Greek gods that their whole goal was that they were a good god because they won. You look at Jesus Christ. He won by lowering himself and losing. Right? That does not fit the modern mindset. That does not fit the American dream. That does not fit our goal of, man, we have to be, have prosperity, we've got to have wealth, we've got to have power. Because Jesus said, I'm lowering myself Lower than what I deserve. I'm lowering myself lower than what my status is. I'm giving up every right that I have because I love you. It's huge. That's huge. That's beyond anything that any of the Greek heroes ever did. <laughs> it's beyond any mythology that anyone could ever teach. But to the Greeks, they said, what kind of story is this where your hero dies? Right? If your hero dies, this is foolishness. You're, this is garbage. There's no sense in us listening to you because your hero can't even win. And what they misunderstood, same as with the Jews, they thought he needed to win right now. And they didn't see that spiritually and in the grand scheme of things and in eternity, Christ at the cross defeated death, defeated sin, defeated hell, defeated the grave. But all they could see was that physically, I don't see... This doesn't make sense. I can't explain this. I don't know how this works. So it's foolishness. And so we have these two types of folks that to, the, to them, the gospel's not powerful. The gospel's not wise. It's foolishness. It's an offense. It's a stumbling block. And so you jump down here. I want you to understand this doubter in modern day wants to explain and understand the power of God in human logic and advances. Regularly we see this happen where some new scientific method comes or or some new way of studying. Uh, an example is carbon dating. Okay, well, we can do carbon dating, and we think that we can get a pretty good guess of how old something is based on the carbon around it and, and the carbon in the layer of that geology. If it's, if it's this certain way, I can test it, and I'll know it's billions and billions of years old. And it proves that the Bible's not true, which is all well and good until they get to a layer that has animals they say lived billions of years ago and like a stop sign and they're like okay wait a second we can explain this ancient times they must have had stop signs too right ancient times there must have been mountain dew bottles when the when the uh the animals all became extinct because this carbon dating has got to be right wrong wrong they don't have it figured out we start to try to prove god through science let me tell you something you got it backwards we can't, we'll never do that. You're never going to prove God through science because science can only go as far as the laws that God's created and, and made into every part of life. 
God knows how it all works. We're not teaching him anything. He made it. He created it. He orchestrated it. He designed it, and he knows how it goes. So every time that we start to find a way, well, science just proved God wrong, and then five years later we realize, no, God's still right. Never mind. We, we got it wrong. I want you to realize that there's no human logic. There's no human advance that's ever going to correct God. Never will it happen. Never will it change what God's taught. The power is in God. The wisdom is in God. So see, I want you to understand here, God never intended. I want you to realize this. If God wanted us to be able to explain Him, we could explain Him. But that wasn't the way He wanted it. God never intended for human logic. God never intended for human wisdom to be the way of salvation. It was always about faith. It always required you to do something but without seeing why you were doing it. And you know what? If you've, if you've been a Christian very long, you know that's exactly how God continually works in your life. And exactly how God continually does things throughout your life is that it's not about knowing what the next step is. It's about knowing that God said to take it. And whatever it is, I'm going to take it. You look at Abraham. He said, go into the desert. Well, where am I going, God? Just go. Just start walking. And he did it. And God has, the, the nation of Israel is what it is as a result of Abraham's faithfulness in following God. You look at Noah. Noah is building a boat, and they've never seen rain before. So not only is he trying to explain that there's going to be a flood that covers the whole world, and you're all going to die, he has to explain that the flood is going to be because of this new thing called rain that's going to fall from the sky, and when it does, I think that I have to be on this boat. Like Noah's kind of like, this is what God said to do, and it's true. So you had to do it. It's never been about knowing or explaining. Noah couldn't have sat down and said, well, here's why. Here's the scientific reasoning for why there's never been rain and why there will now be rain. And this is the way that the rain's going to fall. And this is why I'm building the boat this way. He's had what God said to do, and he had faith in God. That was it. When you accepted Christ as your Savior, you couldn't explain what the substitutionary death of Christ was. When you accepted Christ as your Savior, you didn't know what He was going to do in your life. You didn't know what His plan for, was you, uh, plan for you was. I can remember when I was 16 and accepted Christ as my Savior. I said, I'm getting saved, but I'll never be a pastor. Good one, John. Way to go. You had that pegged. You figured that one out. I can remember going to Bible college, and I said, all right, God, I'll be a youth pastor, but I'm never going to preach. Once again, I was so correct and right that I, I had that figured out. I can remember being at Bible college and saying, okay, God, I'll preach to teenagers, but I don't ever want to be a pastor pastor. That was, that was the way, if you're a youth pastor, that's the way you say it. You're a youth pastor, and then there's the pastor pastor, like the real pastor. So that's how I always saw it. I don't see it that way now, but that's how I saw it when I was a youth pastor. God didn't have that plan. You know what? I'll tell you the truth. If when I was 16, God would have said, all right, 20, or let's see, 16 years from now, you're going to be standing as a pastor of a church. I'd be like, wait, hang on just a second. Let's, let's slow this down and rethink this, God. I don't know if you know who you're talking to here. I'm kind of a screw-up. You don't really want me to talk to a lot of people at once. It's probably a bad idea. But God had a plan. His plan's better than my plan. His plan's wiser than my plan. His plan's in control of everything. Here's the truth of the matter. We don't have to understand it. We have to believe it. Now, I'm not advocating. Some of you just heard me say, well, you don't have to read your Bible and you don't have to understand anything. We just can be dumb. No, that's not what I'm advocating. But the most important thing is not understanding. The most important thing is believing. And we have God's Word. And, and, and the funny thing is, this is the next point, is uh, number two, when we have the Savior, when we are believers, the Gospel is powerful and wise to the believer. The gospel is powerful and wise to the believer. We know that because we look here in verse number 20, uh, verse 18, 24, and 25 is what we're going to look at here. 
Verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Or in other words, those that have accepted Christ know the power of salvation, know the power of the cross. He goes down to verse number 24. Here's what the Bible says. It says, But to those who are the called, or in other words, those who are believing, those who are being saved, both Jews and Greeks, so it crosses all the lines of ethnicity, crosses all the lines of, of your mindset or how you think, crosses all the lines of what you believed before. Now it's to everybody. He says, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He goes on further in verse 25. He says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the wicked, uh, not the wickedness, the weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness of God, so, so, and we'll get to that in just a minute, but God at his weakest and God at his most foolish is still more, far more wise and far more powerful than we'll ever be. But here I want you to understand this. A, it says, to, tho, uh, to those who believe, the power of the gospel is evident. We see that in verse 18. That the gospel is power. I want you to think about this. Those of you that are believers in the room, look around and think, how in the world could anybody explain any of this without Jesus Christ? Right? The simplest things. If you've ever, if you've ever really sat down and looked at something that seems so simple and really thought through how that could come into being without a creator... It's dumbfounding how anybody could ever believe. Even, let, let's even think about uh, a bug, right? A bug's pretty simple, a mosquito. Just to have the ability for a mosquito to fly, right? The, the right weight to wing distribution. The ability to bite you and feed on you. The ability to reproduce at alarming speeds. The ability to be the plague that they are. How does that happen on its own? It doesn't. It doesn't, but you hear people that will say, well, you know, there was a single-celled organism, and then that grew legs. Oh, wait, time out. Wait, it went from there was something that wasn't there to begin with. Where did that come from? Well, we don't really know, but it did. It came, and then it grew legs and did all these other things. And, well, how did those things happen? Well, we don't really know. We just believe it, right? Everybody has to believe something. And, and as believers in Christ... The gospel is evident. The power of God is evident. The wisdom of God is evident. And not just in nature. You look at your own life. I look back at my own life. And I can remember my wife and I were driving to Atlanta this week. And we, had, we talked about, I think, six different instances where we know for a fact that God preserved our lives. Right? Six times that we found out, oh, I really should have died at this moment in my life. But God preserved me. I'll give you an example. If you've ever been to upstate New York, in the Finger Lakes district. There's all these hills, and for some reason in the Northeast, they believe that roads should be just barely wider than one car. And if it's any wider, you're wasting space. You just got to try to stay on that road. Well, Lee and I, it's probably 2 o'clock in the morning, are driving up and down these hills. No guardrails, no nothing. You've got basically cliffs off both sides. We're driving actually towards Binghamton, New York. If you ever drive up through North New York, that's where we were. I heard some noise, but being the man that I am, I was like, ah, it's probably fine. We'll just keep going. We'll be fine. Nothing's a big deal. We, so, so we keep driving. I keep hearing the noise, and it sounds like slamming. And I'm like, oh, it's probably nothing. It's probably just something shifting. Mind you, we're pulling a, whatever the biggest U-Haul trailer that they make is, that's behind me. And I'm driving a 2002 expedition with 150,000 miles on it. And I'm thinking, well, we're fine. This is, everything's good. 
Long story short, we drive and we were driving up through these mountains for probably a good two and a half hours hearing that banging and that noise. And we get up the next morning and I look at the trailer and I'm like, something's not right. Something's not exactly the way it's supposed to be. And I look closer and one of the bolts on our trailer hitch that was on our car when we got it was gone. The trailer was on the ground. And the night before when I went in, the trailer was not on the ground. The trailer was in such a way that if I had been driving down those hilly mountain roads and it had fallen with my family and every belonging I had, if it had fallen a few hours earlier, we'd have been rolling down the hill. We'd have been dead. There's no way we could have lived. That's just one example. We had six of these times where it was very clear, oh God, you allowed me to live and I didn't die. Thanks for that. And it made us think, how many more times do we not see the evidence? How many more times did he save us physically that we didn't even know about? And then you go a step further, not even death, but, but how God brought us here in the first place, right? If you ever heard the story, when I talked to Pastor Tom the first time, he had a five-year plan. Five years, and then he was going to retire or somewhere around that the first time we talked. Three months later, he's retired. And I, I've got an interim pastor that I'd never met before and following his direction. And I've shared the story with some of you. If, if Dave had been the pastor when I candidated, I would never have been here. And it's nothing against Dave. It's not that I dislike Dave. It's no problem with Dave. But God knew what he was doing. And God had a plan. And God steered my life. And God brought me exactly where he wanted me to be. It wasn't a coincidence that Carrie just happened to be teaching Todd's daughter. For me to be able to get involved with FCA and and try to unite our church and do real ministry in kids that don't know the Lord. It wasn't a coincidence. God orchestrates those things and when we look back at our lives as believers we think how in the world would you not believe in Jesus Christ here's the answer to those that are not believing that have no faith it's all foolishness it's all weakness it's just a bunch of gibberish want you understand that the faith that we have in Christ is the key that unlocks the gospel when we by faith believe and accept Christ Our understanding is clear. I want you to understand we see His wisdom. We see His power. And the last thing brings us to this. The power that we must rely on is the Lord's. At its most foolish, the wisdom of God is wiser than us. That's what the Bible says. Even when we would consider, you know what, this is, you know what, God, this is not your best day, but it's still a whole lot better than my best day. That's what He says there. God, maybe this is not the greatest thing I've ever seen you do, but it's still monumentally, exponentially greater than anything I could do. You know what? The same thing's true for our church. We can try to drive this with human efforts. We can try to do our best to, to reach people, to, to be a beacon of light. We can do everything we can to push our church in the direction that we think God wants it to go, but it's going to pale in comparison to what He'll do Himself if we will put our focus and our faith in Him. So you, we get to the end here, and you say... Well, what, what is the key? How, how do we really connect? How do we jump into that power? I'm going to give you these, these blanks before I finish. I know some of you are like me, and if I left a blank unfilled, it would bother you the rest of the week. So let me give you the blanks, and then I'll wrap it up. Um, at its most weak, and, uh, the power of God is more powerful, and we must draw our wisdom and our power from Christ alone. So here's where I'm at. How do we draw our wisdom and our power from Christ alone? How does that happen? We see in Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6, the Bible says... Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understandings. In all thy ways, acknowledge Him 
And that word acknowledge doesn't mean just like, hey God, I see you. It means look to him and he'll direct your paths. Jeremiah 33 says, call unto me and I'll answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. You say, well, what, what, what does all that mean? Here's what it means. If you want the power of God on your life, if you want the power of Christ and the power of the gospel to make a difference in your family, to make a difference in our community, to make a difference in our church, the key to all of that is faith. That's it. That's it. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. That's it. If we're not living every day by faith, and, and here's how that translates that as our church, if we need to know, God, what's the end result before we ever jump into what He wants us to do, we'll never get the end result. If we need to know, well, God, how, exactly how much is it going to cost? Exactly how much, is it gonna, how much time is it going to take? Exactly how much effort am I going to have to exert? If we have to know those things going in, you'll never see the end result. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. You know, we're going to do some things that are going to make me uncomfortable over the next few months. We're going to do some things that might make you uncomfortable over the next few months. And we start to think, well, I've never done this before. We've never tried this before. We've never been here before. But I want you to remember this. To those that have faith, it's wisdom and it's power. But to those that don't have faith, it's foolishness and weakness. It's the only difference. Let's stand together. As the musicians come, every head bowed and every eye, uh, eye closed as we pray together. <clears throat> maybe you today, maybe you today have never life-changing the never-changing power of here today saying, in on that, what you're talking about. How God, I don't want to give up. When God calls three times in the book of Hebrews and once in Psalms, the scripture says this. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Now, that word harden is the Greek where we get callous. From my life, you today, faith says, and believe right on the cross for your sense that he's the only way to salvation right there. See, maybe you say, I really haven't seen what you're talking about. I haven't seen what you're talking about in my personal you. And spiritual callous gets put over your heart. Three times in Hebrews, once in Psalms. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. But there are those who say, not today. Not today. I don't want to surrender my life today. I don't want to completely give myself to him today but the angel said today in Bethlehem